before we begin, share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash D Dystopian Republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com and support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystopians, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the midday of August 1st, 1965. Adelina, Ramira, and Kimmy relished watching Kiana, Brett Jr., and Rhett look out in astonishment at how the Brumelian settlers turned West Rifuji Khan into a little piece of Clemente. Their limo crossed the bridge out of Rifuji Khan and into the tropically lush jungle of Aldelnion, going up to the roadsided end of an upward circling road. Its dark-skinned driver and standby jumped out and unlocked an elegant heavy gate initialed by the red blood cells that penned and flowed its gothic A. They sped on through, stepped out again, relocked the gate, and re-entered the limo. The two drove the kids an enshrouding world away, thrilling their hormones the farther along they went. Their ride ended at a stone parking area where the jungle suddenly changed to open, tame grassland. Landscaped gardens ate themselves sick on roses, poppies, daffodils, bells of Ireland, hydrangeas, and lavenders. The drivers helped the kids out of the limo and escorted them down a fine stone path. That nice walk had the Benitez kids take note of the gardeners and landscapers whose skin tones were as dark as the men escorting them. Never in their lives had they seen a Rubapelli's native in person, let alone so many of them in one place. The smiles on the workers' faces were sunshines and rainbows to their naive minds. In spite of them being no strangers to struggle or reality, they thought nothing of what feelings lied beneath the surfaces of their skins, ears, eyes, noses, and mouths. Kiana and her brothers gazed in awe at the grandeur scale 
simple geometrics, Doric detail, and dramatic columns that formed the gold, pearl, and ruby castle that was their new home. The kids were taken into Adelino Sr., Jr., and Courtenay's welcoming arms, immersing the next eight years and 16 days of their lives. Adelino's servants pampered them from the time they woke up to the minute they fell asleep and every necessary second in between. The school the Benitezes attended with his kids was where the sons and daughters of the nation's elites acquired the educated, well-rounded intellects he wanted his next generation of leaders to have. During that time, Adelina presided over the student council. Brett Jr. took up flamenco dancing. Kiana became an equestrian of excellence. Ramira earned her status as a valedictorian. Rhett mastered the ins and outs of art. Kimmy learned to play every instrument she could. And Adelino Jr. worked his tail off to be the nation's lead footballer. As for their popularity, it was in a standing no one else could come close to, at least for the first five years. But come 1971, Dade joined their peers in being curious about what life was like beyond their bubble. That panicked Adelino into breaking the necks of the speeds he had his serfs work at, building coastal and inland resorts to give his young nobles the horizon expansions they asked for. At first, his project was an investment he made to keep his young people happy. But upon its impressively beautiful completion, Adelino came to realize that he had planted himself a patch full of moneymakers. And so he told the world about his resorts and the unforgettably majestic adventures that awaited tourists. The 1973 day, that was August 18th, sunrose over the Adebayo Resort in Platicosta. Now years older, the seven kids were hours removed from their afternoon and evening of partying. It was their first morning, with neither parent being their chaperone. The kids' unrestrained love for them didn't lessen their yearn for a little dem time. In the bathtub, Kiana kneaded the backs of her sleeping brothers' necks as their heads lay on her cursive forearm tattoos of their names. On the sofa, Ramira had a ball reading a novel about titans of business fighting looters of productivity. Out on the balcony, Kimmy and Adelino Jr. listened to the surrounding nature musically come alive. A grown kinkajou jumped from the balcony and into the suite, getting all in Adelina's face as she still slept. The little noises it made and its sniffs of her nose abruptly woke her up with its kisser touching hers. Adelina screamed hysterically, jolted far back 
and swatted the honey bear like a housefly. Her reactions petrified the kinkajou into jumping and barking with the franticness of a shattered wasp colony. The others stopped what they were doing and rushed to the blaring ruckus, seeing Adelina struggle to fight off the bear's biting and scratching. Their shock toward that sight wasn't as profound as their outrage at her indignant hurling of the kinkajou partly through the balcony window. The bear bounced from where it cracked up the glass, leaving bloody traces as Adelina rushed to completion its retreat back into the wild by beating it up with a flurry of whatever objects she could throw at it. She dropped a kindred blitz of racially slurred bombs after discerning her bites and scratches. Rhett backed up the task Kimmy took Adelina to in response to her abuse and tirade. Brett concurred with the scorn Kiana racially heaped on them over their pity for the honey bear. Ramira and Adelino Jr. stayed silent and fought over the comments made. Adelina yelled about that kinkajou effing her blue-blooded face up. Rhett anxiously pleaded with her to stop racially slurring for the love of the Lord. His shaky clenched fist had Adelina smirking and Kimmy scowling. Her scowl irritated Kiana into telling her to fix her face up or she and Brett will repair it for her. Kimmy derisively licked her lips and asked Kiana if that's what she said before burning off the face of that Robopalese rebel she hunted down like a rabbit. That deprecating slur blew Kiana's lid, scaring Brett into keeping her charging and wriggling under his restraint as Kimmy's hands, heart rate, and posture remained steady. Kiana stormily told her to call her a maimer again, threatening to burn her like she damaged the sycophant who tried to extirpate her. Her outburst gave Kimmy an urge to vomit that called her a sick little pig. Seeing that Adelino was too afraid to respond, Ramira perturbedly implored them to quit their rebuking. Her plea sombered Kimmy and Kiana into imagining how hurt Adelino Sr. and Courtenay would be if they saw them at each other's throats. That appeal mollified Adelina into thanking Ramira for stopping their spat from taking a lamentable turn. She menaced Kimmy and Rhett into genuflecting and closing their eyes before her parents heard about their misbehavior. Their unhesitating compliance pleasurably doing her axons excellent, Adelina told them to reopen their eyes, preceding the cayenne aerosols she jetted into their eyeballs. Their falling screams soared to pitches and decibels higher than megaphones at girlish frequencies, spooking the others into falling in line. Kimmy and Rhett's eyes burned worse than mouths stuffed with chewed-up habaneros. Adelina threw her emptied cans onto their faces like frisbees, 
constricting them above their larynxes and below their lower jaws immediately after. Adelina profanely bellowed to Rhett how lucky he was that her father had a big enough heart to take him in, pointing out the red wasp venom that ran in his veins. She roared in kind at Kimmy for derelicting her promise to continue where her parents, Gaioline and Kestrel, left off after giving their lives to bring civilization to Robapel. Adelina gazed daggers into her and Rhett sharper than an insulted drill sergeant. She apprised her siblings to look at themselves and each other, calling them their and her champions and the ones she and they were to advocate for. Adelina yelled out her belief that they wouldn't be squat had her parents not made their lives full and prosperous. She went on to say that Adelino Sr. and Courtenay were why she and Junior were alive, and the reason behind their union's longevity and vitality. The good times that smothered their childhoods in smiles and cheers blew their frowns and agonies out of the water, nudging them about that Saturday being Adelina's 18th birthday. Still in his regal pajamas, Adelino Sr. received a call from his close friend, Burkrahe III, whose reign over Nefuala, a closely knitted island bunch southwest of Robapel, was a month younger than his. Burr affably asked him how much fun he was having with raising the natives in his archipelago. Adelino laughed out loud, telling him about the kicks he got from seeing the natives wag their tails like good little dogs. That humored Burr into making him the first to know about his plan to civilize Ghana like he did to Nefuala. Adelino voiced his worry about him being too candid about his foreign ambitions. Burr replied by telling him to perish his worries in that they're untouchable for as long as the Red Hunter from America ran the show. They knew that Hunter would have their backs as their countries were assets in his war against communism. Adelino warned Burr not to let his ambitions get to his head, adding that the era of imperial expansion was fast waning. He also advised him not to underestimate those natives of his, describing them as willful and volatile. Burr ended the call with the hope that Adelino would have fun at his daughter's party. As he hung up, Adelino caught vibrations of rapid gunfire, making him nervous and restless about the natives on his soil. The waltz he and Courtenay practiced for tonight rolled and revolved his neuroses away, centering their thoughts around the fun they're gonna have and not the point their regime was about to turn to. Their kids' ride down the elevator carried over the pains their morning spat inflicted. Reddish-yellow inks burned Kimmy and Rat's every blink, swelling their desires 
to secretly confide their maltreatments in anyone who will listen. The kids stepped into the resort's beauty salon and its separate, private workrooms. Kimmy and Rhett's battered faces appalled Ikena, Iheshirika, and Yahide Olainka. Their cosmetologists knew right away what went down and who was at fault. Ikena and Yahide alleviated their optical burns by washing their eyes with warm, soaked rags. Those washes relieved Kimmy and Rhett of their stresses and turned their frowns upside down. The bounds their friendship faced were akin to the limitations Kimmy and Rhett came across when they were pen pals. Their friendly exchanges were limited to written letters and appointments in soundproof rooms. Ikena and Yahide were rubbed up the wrong way by the fear Kimmy and Rhett emoted over the friendship being outed. Without forethought, they rebuked their fears of being slapped on the wrist, underlining the books that would be thrown at them should that outing happen. The horrified gasps Ikena and Yahide sucked in were the gusts Kimi and Rhett were put up by. It stunned, silent their voice boxes and froze solid their grudges. The cedar choppy lob and sable crew cut Ikena and Yahide trimmed, combed, and dyed for Kimi and Rhett inaudibly and tranquilly came to be. That quietness had the former pair dreading their futures' uncertainties and the latter one longing to learn more. At the beach, precisely opposite to the resort, white and non-white troops stood guard with their machine guns ready at the large fortress that overlooked it. They talked smaller than a circle of teenagers on the quad during lunch recess. The troops' banters were interrupted by a military ship setting anchor a quarter mile off the shore. Their alarm bells were armed to sound but stayed mute after seeing that it belonged to their Nefwali's friends. The two nations enjoyed a fraternal interdependence that traced back to when Carlyle III hired Adelino and Burr to lead separate settler groups to take over Robapel and Nefuala, respectively. Robapelese troops saw their Nefuala's equivalents dispassionately bored onto several landing crafts. Their arms opened and greetings readied as the heavy boats wobbled and seesawed their ways ashore. The troops skipped near the crafts as its doors plopped open to reveal soldiers who had anything but friendship to offer. They barely had time to react in utter shock before their Nefuali's neighbors bitterly entered into combat with them. That entry was met with an unexpectedly valiant response on part of the reinforcements that came charging out like provoked yellow jackets. The crafts and fortress became their respective go-tos for protection from the gunfire 
they relentlessly reciprocated. Initially, the Roapelis had the upper hand in fending off their Nefoali's aggressors. Their defense was about to drive their invaders into retreating when offensive snipers from the ship took out their muscle with all possible haste. The Nefoali's raided the fortress and intimidated Robopelis survivors into laying down their arms and submitting to their arrests. Then they amassed their rivals in a bunch inside the fortress's basement and massacred them on high-quality film. The Robopelis who just died knew nothing of the jacquerie that was unfolding in Nefuala. Ten miles to the southeast, the Roaring Twenties and Jazz Age transformed the resort's ballroom in its shared image. That likeness was the result of Adelina wanting to bring to life the soirees that a millionaire from Long Island would hold. Just beyond the resort proper was a manor lodge that inherited pennies out of every dollar's worth of its pizzazz. Ikena frantically paced around the room he shared with Yehide, upsetting her into telling him to stop walking before she goes insane. They were in an absolute panic over the hints they handed Kimmy and Rhett on silver platters. Those two feared the repercussions that were waiting for them at their home camp six miles into the jungle. They had front row seats and were on stage when it came to how they and their native siblings were all treated at the hands of Adelino's police. No one who wasn't a guard was allowed to be anywhere near where people like Ikena and Yahide were being held. Their home camp was a garden-like mass of jungle huts congregating before a dorm-like bungalow that looked down on them. Ikena and Yahide lived like prisoners whose lives were rigidly scheduled from wake-up call to bedtime. It was a supervised release by sun and house arrest by moon that was brought to bear under penalty of brutality. Three guards got Ikena to heed his wake-up call by hurling racist abuse at him. Slurs he returned fire on by affronting their light skin and bromelian heritage. Those affronts angered them into making the whole camp watch him be beaten senseless. Yahide just started her shower when five guards stepped in with her and tried to sexually attack her, only for their attempts to be slithered through. Her would-be assaulters made up for that slivery escape by choking her out and leaving her to rest in her nakedness. During one breakfast, Ikena delivered a haymaker to one of the guys who attacked him that plopped him flat on his rear end. That wounded his attacker's ego so severely that he convinced his superiors to reassign him to a camp further up north. Yehide brought fruits to her most recent transfer to work by bluntly punting the groins of two of the men who grabbed her in the shower, 
Her kicks ruined her attackers such that they voluntarily undertook desk duty and hadn't since been among the detainees. In the midst of all that, she and Ikenna shared the onus of making sure their affinities with Rat and Kimmy remained their little secrets. They counted on the Eastern mailers having the hearts to not rat them out, and on their hope that the walls they hid their conversations in didn't fall through. Ikenna was the only person whom Kimmy trusted enough to confide her difficulties in, a trust Rhett also exclusively gave but to Yehide. Kimmy told her all to him about Adelina being a racist bully who was spoiled rotten to the point of abusively imposing her privilege on anyone she came into contact with. She opened her heart to Ikenna regarding Adelino Sr. controlling her daily life as strictly as he governed his society. Kimi also laid bare the talks Courtenay would hold with her about how Bromelians were a super people destined to once again rule the earth. Rhett disclosed to Yehide how Kiana went from defending him at all costs to standing by the Anyones in identical fashion. He passed on to her how his relationship with Brett decayed so much that their nightly sleeps with their sister were all they had to share. Kimi and Rhett vouchsafed how Ramira was utterly determined to keep their unit at one, even if it went against their best interests. They made it known that their home lives belabored Adelino Jr. so horribly that his capacity to act or speak out had been leveled. Kimi and Rhett's troubles became sources of aggravation for Ikenna and Yehide due in large measure by their contrasting statuses. Up until the rebukes, their friends refrained from saying anything that would hurt them, finding no point in making them feel ashamed for being brought up in ways that weren't of their choosing. At any rate, Ikenna and Yehide were still in their overwrought kerfuffles over the compromising rebukes that slipped out of them. They cuddled for a warmth that mended their neuroses enough for their minds to come to terms with what they just did. Like Brett Sr. and Abby, they too were conscious of how serious their offenses were. As pickup time approached, a grave doom swept over Ikenna and Yehide, caterwauling their coming firings and immediate transfers to a more ill camp. For all the abuses those two endured at their current camp, they were minor compared to the inhumanities that were the norm over at some of the other camps further in the cluster. The closer their time of reckoning drew, the firmer Ikenna and Yehide embraced. When that hour arrived, there was no sudden locking of the exits, search warrant-like raid, or irate command for all roomies to lie face down with their hands behind their backs. Five more minutes ticked on by before it registered to them that something major was unfolding 
and that it was headed straight for their location. A calm, still quiet, weird over the now former Platicosta internment camp. The extent of that site's dismantling was as though a hurricane had paid it a visit. Its straw, hardwood, and glass were situated in a blanket of gore, spent bullets, and blown grenade fragments. The guards who watched over the camp were now overkilled and executed corpses, save for the few at the top who narrowly escaped. Their Nefuali's rivals were well into their raising of every fiber or dot that was even remotely Brumelian. Though the semblances of the natives among the two sides were cut from the same cloth, where their nations were politically were so far apart that their racial similitudes did not matter. The devastation and bloodshed divided the former internees along two sentiments that fought over a third. Many stood ready with their liberators to hideously get even with the very elite minority that tried to wipe their dignities away without a trace. But for several others, their enthusiasm over their liberation was cut short by the red wasps marking the jackets of the people who freed them. That took them to the chilling realization that their freeing was effectively a transfer from one autocracy to another. In the resort's colonial lounge, the kids were all set for their grand entrance into the ballroom before a crowd of their peers and admirers. Their fight that morning showered Adelina in an ill temper that weighed her down like an anchor. That instant took her on a trip down the lane of the sin Kimmy and Rhett committed against her. One recess the Monday prior, their school's quad turned into a de facto boxing event. Its turn was because of a fight night at the Refugicon Armory that brought them and their peers under one roof. The fights they witnessed enlivened them into showing off their boxing skills with their bare hands on the grass. Two bouts started and ended before Adelina, Kimmy, and Rhett had their turn in the middle. Their one-on-two fights jump out of the gate was a balanced level gauge that didn't move. However, Kimmy and Rhett's haymakers to Adelina's eyes skewed the bout in their favor. They fiercely pummeled her into defeat and after the fact, keeping the punches coming until their peers detained them like dangerous, out-of-control dogs. The kids who tended to Adelina found little success in salving, rubbing, and caressing her distressing injuries away. That low she fell to was the worst in her life, with no exceptions, as it was the closest her ego got to meeting its downfall. The tears Adelina shedded then were the ones secreting down her soul's cheeks now. Come seven at night, the ballroom had become an enthusiastic full house that was eager for the evening's festivities to start. The jazz band played as Adelina graciously entered with her siblings in convoy. Their entrance had its plug yanked off by a snowblast of bullets 
that shot the windows, lights, and chandeliers out. The partygoers scrambled for cover as Nefewali's soldiers came rushing in, maniacally commanding them to get on the ground and stay there. They complied without so much as a reproach, trembling over a predicament they did not foresee themselves being in. In the manner, Ikena and Yahide remained in their clasp previous to their room's door being kicked open. Two soldiers checked the room for enemy troops, a search that came up with nothing. Ikena and Yahide loosened their embrace, relieved to be told by the soldiers that their oppressors can hurt them no more. The soldiers escorted them and the others they freed to a meeting room, sitting them down before a large radio. Their comrades in the ballroom put a second radio on two chairs and pointed at it a microphone. All dressed up, Adelino and Courtenay were about to leave for their limo when their radio's air abruptly went dead. What they and countless others heard next would pierce the centers of their cores. It was Chizoba Coyote greeting the Robopelis people as Nefuala's leader once more. Ikena and Yehide led the smiles, cheers, and claps that filled the air in the meeting room. Chizoba was the president of Nefuala when Burr ousted him from power, forcing him into years of hiding. His reputation was that of a democratic leader who believed in freedom, peace, justice, and prosperity, as did his best friend, Haruna Abiodun, who was Robopel's president when Adalino deposed and ran him out of the country. Natives like Ikena and Yahide loved and trusted Chizoba because he and Haruna did their absolute best to keep their people free, educated, and prosperous. From 1953 to 1963, Robopel and Nefuala set excellent examples that the other independent states in Africa would either actively follow or strongly go against. Chizoba informed Adalino and Courtenay that their kids and many of their kind were now his hostages and was more than ready to turn them against him. His declarations came as dreadful shocks to Ikena, Yehide, and the others sitting around them. The Chizoba, they knew, wouldn't even fathom taking hostages or threaten to forcibly sway others into doing his bidding. To them, he was a beautiful soul, whose empathy and kindness was beyond comprehension. That was why hearing Chizoba say what he said was a real departure from the man he once was. Chizoba asked an angry Adalino if he honestly thought that he had seen the last of him, saying that while he has beaten him once before, their second clash will have a very different ending, as he was no longer by himself. He introduced to him the man who will help him get Robapel back, someone whom the Brumelians knew exceptionally well. That man greeted Adelino with a voice that made it clear to him 
and everyone else that he was none other than Alexis Jr., a name that shuddered both settlers and natives. They explicitly heard about all the deplorable things he did when Bromelia was his to rule. Adelino asked Alexis what happened, or better yet, what he did to Burr. Alexis laughed at his question, answering that he slaughtered Burr like the fascist pig he was, and that his former settlers too will soon pay for their crimes against the Nefoalis people. That response made what Adelino feared come true in one of the worst possible ways. All he could say in reaction was threaten Alexis with death if he were to lay a hand on any of his children. Alexis poked fun at his threat, calling it toothless and reminiscent of a man whose grip on power was well on its way to impotency. Alexis ranted about being numb to fascists, threatening and endangering his life, having been the target of an operation that tasked Carlisle, Burr, Adelino, and company with killing him on sight. To his fortune, his contacts abroad informed him of the mission, so he fled for Nefuala long before his invaders even began their voyage to the mainland. Alexis boasted about how the East had made him untouchable and indestructible, adding that he and the Red Wasps were forever. In an unheard of instance of agreement, Ikena and Yehide were as incensed and disgusted with Alexis and Chizoba as Adelino was. No love was lost between them and him, yet they despised Alexis every bit as greatly. He was why they and their families fled from Brumelia when he turned authoritarian. Their roots set in Robapel, the Iheshirika and Olienka families immigrated to the mainland during the Four Horsemen era, living successful and untroubled lives, until Alexis's great terror ran them back to their former country. Alexis declared that Platicosta was now under the control of Viznefuala, giving the people there the choice to either join his new Red Wasp revolution or suffer gravely. The hearts in Ikena and Yehide wrenched at the despair their equals expressed over the abominable choice they were all condemned to make. Even so, those two unequivocally refused to succumb to that despondency. They wholeheartedly believed that their people didn't have to choose between a racist like Adelino and a narcissist like Alexis. That said, Ikena and Yehide now faced the colossal task of emboldening their fellow person to stand up and fight both extremists. A tall order they knew had a slim chance of winning them back their freedom. The settlers at the party were in such frights that their bodies vibrantly shivered. Adelina and her clique feared that Alexis would turn them into playthings for Alexis III, Loretto, and others of their group to use and abuse. Despite the pickle that he was in, Adelina was still able to secure his resources and connections in his hands. But even a man like him was unaware of the surprises that were coming for him. At a set-up camp in an untouched part of Aldelnion, 
Akosuwasaribo, Kahina Zamit, Lumusi Kojo, Juma Bahadia, Kasembo Metido, and Tadala Mangawa were tuned into everything that was unfolding. Trained to fight and survive by Haruna's Nefuala, their heads were at a place that was home to the virtuous kind of justice. Those six desired to hold Adalino, Alexis, and Chizoba accountable for their actions and bring Roapel and Nefuela back to their former democratic glories. Notwithstanding the impeccable abilities that those three men had in charming people into towing the lines that sketched out their orders of darkness. Yet all factions had little clue as to how dire and public their situation was about to get, and as fate would have it, the years that followed would have lasting implications for not only them, but for the whole world, altering the course of history for its inhabitants. And that was the Orders of Darkness. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic. <laughs>